Welcome to Dr. Waffle and Friends, a podcast where we share personal writing and then chat about it together. And now, here's Deanna with the reading. Smoke gets in your eyes and all up in your face. The other day, my friend Em and I were innocently enjoying a cocktail at a new wine bar in town when we were, through absolutely no fault of our own, pummeled by the South. Okay, let me back up a little. It's possible that we were not entirely innocent, but we were just about as blameless as it's possible to be while still living in a society with other human beings and attempting to share limited resources of our planet. There's only so much you can do to avoid harming your fellow travelers in this veil of tears. But it's probably best to start at the beginning. M had started smoking again. She's going through a divorce and has drifted back into a series of bad habits that she fully recognizes are both temporary and absolutely necessary. I am also an on-again, off-again smoker, and have been gently meandering my way back into the habit as well, first out of solidarity, and then out of the fact that nicotine is transplendently awesome and, in case you didn't know, addictive as all fuck. There are too many people in this town who smoke casually— One could move from social event to social event, only smoking other people's cigarettes occasionally, and still piece together quite a respectable little addiction. On that very afternoon at that very wine bar, Em and I made a solemn vow that we were all going to have to pick a date soon to quit as a community. When we arrived at the wine bar, we did everything right. Em was going to have a quick cigarette in the alley outside, but realized she didn't have a light, so we went inside to ask at the hostess station if they had any matches. The willowy girl woman behind the podium blinked at us uncomprehendingly. Matches? she asked, trailing off in confusion. Do you mean like... and then stopped, unable to furnish even a guess about what we could be referring to. Yeah, like to light a cigarette, Em replied, while I pronounced clearly and distinctly at the same time, as if to an inquisitive toddler, we need fire. She nodded and replied thoughtfully, I have a lighter. We assured her that it was just what we needed, asked if we could sit outside on the patio, and then inquired if Em was allowed to smoke out there. I'm happy to go back to the alley for my cigarette if it's not okay, Em swore. The hostess blinked at us again, unsure what her own restaurant's policy was regarding this bizarre custom. I'll check with my manager. We thanked her again and went out to the patio to choose our seats. It was a big, breezy space with plenty of large tables spaced far apart, so we didn't think twice about sitting down at a table right next to another party, simply because it was the one closest to the door and we wanted to be as far away from the street as possible. I glanced over at a table of three other women and exchanged greetings with one of them, whom I recognized from local Democratic Party organizing. When our man-child waiter arrived with our menus, he announced that it was fine to smoke outside. M thanked him and asked for an ashtray. "'Ashtray?' he asked, trailing off in confusion. "'Um, I don't think so, but let me see if we can find something.' He returned with a tiny cast-iron skillet exactly the size of an ashtray, complete with divots on each side, ostensibly for pouring off liquids, but also perfect for holding a smoldering stick of carcinogenic plant material. "'Oh, how adorable!' we cried. "'It's exactly right!' He clucked in agreement and gave the little skillet a quarter turn to show it off more effectively. "'It's almost like it was meant to be an ashtray,' he said delightedly. And then M lit her cigarette. 
As if activated by invisible springs, the women at the table next to us immediately stiffened, leapt to their feet, and began ostentatiously gathering up their water glasses and menus. We are all allergic to smoke, one of them announced. Oh no, I'm so sorry, Em cried, moving to stub out her cigarette. I don't need to smoke. Please sit back down. But the ringleader, the woman I knew slightly from local politics and charity work, would have none of it. No, 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 not at all. It's absolutely no trouble for us to move, she insisted. We're outside. You should have the right to smoke. We're fine moving a couple of tables over. My friend tried again. Really? I promise you I don't even really smoke. I can put this out if it's bothering you. And then things took a turn for the weird. No, 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 we are happy to move and allow you, your space, to smoke your cigarettes, the woman cried again. And then, after an ominous pause, she went on, I'm just worried for you. You are so beautiful, and you're just going to ruin those looks with smoking. You really should quit. It's a terrible habit. I'm only thinking of you. My friend thanked her and promised she was going to quit soon. She then tried again, a third time, to make the women stay at the next table. I'm putting out my cigarette right now, she promised. But they were already halfway across the patio. You go ahead and smoke. We're outside and there's plenty of space. It's your day, the other woman was now shouting across the width of the large patio. It's your day. We watched them resettle themselves at their new table for a moment, Then I turned back to my friend and reminded her that it was her day. Well, this entire situation has been bizarre from beginning to end, I said. We agreed that it was fascinating to note the range of reactions, from stiff disapproval to utter incomprehension, to M's desire to smoke a cigarette outside, an activity that was completely socially acceptable within our own memories, and were not ancient. I remember smoking on an airplane for Pete's sake. Don't get me wrong, I am completely behind the society-wide condemnation of smoking, and I really do hope that M quits again soon. Partly out of concern, partly out of self-interest, and partly out of my deep solicitude for her beauty. But it was definitely an intriguing sociological experiment to see how far we've come in such a short time, to the point where a restaurant hostess at a wine bar in the Deep South does not seem familiar with the custom. We had a lovely talk at our breezy outdoor table on the patio at the wine bar in the Deep South. Mostly we drank and enjoyed some delicious tapas, and M had maybe two cigarettes over the course of a couple of hours. We were still lingering, enjoying that loungy, post-food, pre-bill interlude where things are winding down but you're not quite ready to pay up and leave, when we became aware that our former next-table neighbor had materialized before us. I just want to let you know... She began in a pleasant and measured voice. Oh, here we go, I thought. She's going to apologize for making a big deal about that smoking thing earlier. I started arranging my face into a, oh, please don't worry about it, expression. I want to let you know that you ruined our evening. We stared at her in horror. We are leaving early because your smoke is unbearable. We would have stayed longer and enjoyed one another's company some more, but we are forced to leave early because of you. You ruined our evening, she repeated. I just wanted you to know that.
M started apologizing as fast as the physical constraints of human speech production would allow. Oh no, I feel terrible. Why didn't you say something? I would have been happy to put out my cigarette. And that is when we were walloped by the South. I have nothing but love for you, the older woman pronounced to a person she had never met and whom she was attempting to publicly humiliate. I have nothing but love, but I just wanted you to know that you've ruined our evening. I, I'm so sorry, M mumbled again. Nothing but love, the other woman said a third time. I'm only thinking of you. She turned on her heel and stomped off, and M and I sat for a moment in shock. I am not a hundred percent sure, my friend finally said, breaking the silence, that that woman feels nothing but love for me. Both our waiter and the manager of the restaurant appeared before us to apologize. We are so very sorry you were treated so rudely, they reassured us. That was completely uncalled for. Our waiter told us that the other women had been griping for the past hour about how much they were suffering from the cigarette smoke four tables away, bending the ear of their server and anyone else who would listen. I don't like to complain about a table to other customers, he insisted, but wow, they would not shut up about it. It was really unpleasant. I glanced over at the table where the older women had sat for nearly two hours, eating and drinking even though they were being subjected to the tortures of the damned. It was a solid forty feet away. I also noticed that there was a portable mini-fan sitting on the table, the kind of thing people carry around to cool themselves off in the summer, which had been provided by the restaurant. As I regarded this setup, noting that any molecule of smoke that had reached their nostrils from my friend's cigarette would have had to violate the known laws of physics, I came to the inescapable conclusion that they had decided to ruin their own evening. They had clearly gone out of their way to manufacture a state of outrage because they wanted, above all else, to feel aggrieved. They enjoyed the hell out of their anger. Which would have been fine. Far be it for me to begrudge anyone else their guilty pleasures. Some of us have cigarettes and booze, and others of us enjoy the occasional episode of righteous indignation, except for the fact that they needed to rope some innocent bystanders into their psychodrama. Before I go any further, please let me reassure anyone currently listening to this and feeling their own righteous indignation on behalf of the tortured women that I have nothing but sympathy for their desire not to be assaulted by cigarette smoke. Even though we were outside, even though they were 40 feet away, even though they had a mini fan on their table, I absolutely affirm their right to decide that M smoke was bothering them, and I know she would have been happy to refrain in order to accommodate them. How do I know that? The same way that they did, because she announced it clearly and repeatedly in straightforward English sentences and at an adequate volume. Given that the women preferred to nurse their grievance rather than accept a sincere offer to stub out an offending cigarette, one can only conclude that they found the grievance absolutely delicious. The special Mississippi twist, the reason I suggested we were walloped by the South, is merely the regional form that the women's passive aggression took. Nothing but love, I am only thinking of you. The nothing but love line is an even more specific subset of Southern passive aggression, uttered mainly by observant Christians who believe they are patterning their every action, including being mean as shit, after the actions of their Lord and Savior. But the passive aggression itself is certainly universal. 
While someone from L.A. or Philly or Saskatoon would dress it up differently, the impulse to set traps for our fellow human beings and then delight in feeling wronged when they unavoidably spring them comes from a deeper place than, well, place. When I was in grad school, I dated a woman who wanted to introduce me to her mother after we'd been together for a few months. I was really nervous about the meeting. I'd heard stories about Elle's mother, a woman of steely resolve and implacable demeanor who'd been knocked up by an American soldier in Vietnam and moved alone to the U.S. to raise her baby daughter on her own. Elle's stories had made it clear that she was fiercely protective of her daughter and utterly convinced that no one was good enough for her. I was terrified. We met at a fancy restaurant in Chicago, and after the introductions and preliminary chit-chat, Elle's mom asked me to choose the wine from the menu the waiter had just brought. I immediately began to sweat. I was in my mid-twenties, I knew nothing about wine, and I was terrified I was about to make a complete fool of myself. Should I choose something expensive or something cheap? I could imagine scenarios in which both choices were wrong. Imported or American? Was either one symbolic somehow? I had no idea what she liked. It was paralyzing. I decided to begin with an easy question. Red or white? Either one, Elle's mom replied. Are you sure? I asked. I prefer white myself, but I'm happy with red, too. I am indifferent. You choose. I am fine with either. I tried again. What dish are you having? Uh, we could decide it that way. I haven't decided yet, but it won't matter. You just pick whichever you like better. Okay, I said doubtfully, and tried to hedge my bets by ordering a medium-priced California red. The waiter brought the bottle and dragged me through the excruciating ritual of approving a taste from the bottle. Again, I was in my 20s and had no experience with wine. I felt like I was performing an improv skit as I swirled, sniffed, and sipped. I nodded at the waiter that it tasted fine, and he filled Elle's glass. Then he went to pour some for Elle's mother, at which point she shot her hand out between the bottle and the top of her wine glass. A microsecond later, and there would have been red wine all over her wrist in the tablecloth, and sternly informed the waiter that under no circumstances could she drink red wine as it gave her a terrible headache. I prayed for a nuclear munition to strike downtown Chicago and bring the sweet relief of death. Why? 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 Decades have passed in which I've pondered this moment, and still so many questions remain. Was there actually a right answer? If I'd ordered Chardonnay, would Elle's mom have been happy? Or would she then have announced to the waiter that white wine gave her impetigo? Why did she keep her constitutional inability to metabolize red wine a freaking secret? Was the whole exchange an arcane ritual to see if I could decode the subtle signals she was sending me and thus prove myself worthy of Elle? Was she a Freemason or perhaps an occult? Did she not understand that she was mortifying not only me, but also her beloved daughter? Obviously, the whole thing was a setup. One might even call it a trap. And the prey was not so much me as it was the feeling of being wronged. Consciously or unconsciously, she wanted to feel aggrieved, just like the women on the patio the other day, and I was merely a shadow puppet in a moving little drama starring her as an injured party. I get it. I really do. Deeply have I drunk of the bittersweet draft of masochistic pleasure after a betrayal, whether grave or slight, real or imagined. 
There is something absolutely delectable about nursing one's wounds while muttering under one's breath in a darkened room. It's the pleasure of poking a sore tooth with your tongue, or pressing on a fresh bruise to see if it still sends little sparks before your eyes. But it's not just about self-flagellation. It's more about a feeling of being right about XYZ after all. Because nothing, nothing is more satisfying than having your worldview affirmed, even if your worldview is that everyone is out to get you. I remember the first time I saw a sitcom episode in which a parent followed a teenager who'd flounced off to his room in a huff and thrown himself down on the bed. The mom sat down beside her son and smoothed his ruffled hair while he cried. I was genuinely confused by this scene. Never once in my household had such a thing happened. I didn't even know that it was a thing that could happen. In my family, if you flounced off, you were left alone by yourself in the dark for hours until you swallowed your pride and came back downstairs to apologize. In theory, I suppose one might remain sobbing in the dark until one turned into dust. My parents were stubborn, and while I was too, the food was all downstairs. It was a great preparation for reading Jane Eyre, but maybe not such a great preparation for life. To this day, I feel that everything is just right when someone abandons or betrays me. It's like the other shoe has finally dropped, and I can relax into familiar grief. Only untold hours of therapy have given me a slight toehold against the overwhelming tide of painful pleasure I know awaits me in that dark room. What sweet relief it is to let go into rightness, even as you try to remind yourself that a sweeter relief will come after crawling downstairs to rejoin humanity. Maybe there will be some cake left, or a nice glass of white wine, or a couple of cigarettes nestled side by side in the pack. Hello, Dee. Hi, Tanya. I want to welcome you and all the listeners to Season 2 of Dr. Waffle and Friends. Yay, Season 2. <laughs> uh, we've made it through a whole season. There's been some kind of narrative arc in there, I'm sure. And now we're ready to uh, to start at the beginning of Season 2, which is always, you know, whenever a show goes through multiple seasons, Season 1, you're always getting your legs under you. So I think, I, I keep thinking about Buffy and how Season 2 of Buffy, I always say to people, like, just get to halfway through season two and you won't want to stop watching till you get to the end of the series. So I think Absolutely. that's going to be true for us also. Yeah, that is, that is good advice. That's good TV watching advice in general. I also want to just say that we didn't really actually make a conscious decision <laughs> ahead of time to stop at that particular place, but I got COVID and so we had to take a break and then I got, you know, kind of overwhelmed with post-COVID stuff. So we decided we'll just make this the end of season one, the beginning of season two. And it turns out it's 10 episodes. So it was really nice and perfect. And we couldn't have planned it better. So thanks, COVID. I do appreciate how authentic you are in revealing things where I'm just going to gloss them over and say, hey, look, look at this wonderful seasonal pattern that we have. Uh, I think that means soon that I'm going to get to see whatever's behind all those layers of fabric in your closet where you're recording because you, you're, you're just all about sharing. Absolutely. I guess that's my brand. <laughs> yeah. Well, I want to thank you for sharing this piece that you just uh, did. It's, um, gosh, there is is so 
much to it. There's so much going on there. At first, it seems like it's about smoking, but it's but then it's about passive aggression, and then it's <laughs> about you know, and you and you flip it around to really talk about where you're coming from yourself. So I I was wondering if you want to share a little bit about your thoughts on this essay and what it's about. Sure. Um, it started because well, it started with the actual incident that I described with you know my friend and I were sitting in this wine bar and it, it happened, it unfolded precisely the way I described it. And I think it was just a couple of days later, I was still thinking about it. I and mean, we kept talking about it because it was kind of so funny and so awful at the same time. And then I woke up at about three o'clock in the morning, one morning, as I tend to do nearly every night. And it's always kind of a crapshoot whether I'm going to be able to get back to sleep or not. So I, I sometimes try to trick myself into like, don't think about anything. Don't think about anything. Like just <laughs> don't think about your life. Don't remember who you are, where you are, all the stuff you have to get done. And then just kind of try to be, you know, try to drift back to sleep. But it doesn't usually work. Usually something intrudes. And this night I just started thinking about the smoking thing. And then I started writing the essay in my head and that then I'm doomed. If I start writing in my head in the middle of the night, there's no way I have to get up and write it down. So I got up at about four and I immediately went and just started typing it. I, I wrote the whole thing. I drafted the whole thing, the first draft, just without even moving. I, I think maybe like seven or eight o'clock in the morning, I just had a draft and Scott got out of bed and got me some coffee, but I, you know, drafted this whole essay. So that was kind of the writing situation of it. I wanted to write down the incident. I wanted to like write what happened. And then the parts about making the connections to passive aggressiveness in general, or just kind of the, that idea, I started thinking about why would these women, that one woman in particular, why would she be so insistent that she set this up so clearly that she wanted to be pissed off? And then I was like, well, I kind of get that feeling sometimes, you know, I mean, I, I like to think I've maybe therapized myself out of it for the most part, but I still get it. And I still do it sometimes too. I think everybody does. So then I just started thinking, well, maybe the essay is really about that feeling. And then, then I thought about the incident with the wine, which really was a thing that happened exactly like that and still puzzles me to this day. Um, and then, yeah, I just fitted them all together. So that was, that was kind of how it came about, but it was definitely, this is one of the ones that was written in a like four hour, I can't move until I get this down on the page kind of thing. Oh my gosh, there's so much. I I definitely want to get into some of the content, but I also am just just want to reflect that the writing process, it's it sounds like you gain some insight through that early early morning episode of writing. Mm -hmm. Is that, yeah. you know, is that right? It kind of got you to a different place with it? Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. Although it's kind of like it's more fully formed. I mean, when I got out of bed, it was because I was lying there. Here's the issue. Because I was originally trained as a poet and wrote poetry originally. If I, if a line comes to me, like a the beginning of a poem or a line, I ha I have to write it down or I won't, I can't do anything else. I get freaked out that I'm going to forget it. Um, and so that's a similar thing that happens to me with prose too, that I just start, I'll, I'll come up with the first few lines or I'll come up with a catchy little way to start it. Um, and then, then I have to write it down. I'm just doomed. There have been times in my life when I've not written things down and thought immediately and thought, Oh, I'll remember that. And then I don't. And then I'm really sad. <laughs> I think there's some, there's a Seinfeld episode where Jerry has a thought in the middle of the night. Do you remember this one? He has a thought for a joke and he wakes up and he scribbles something down on a memo pad. I think he might even be in a hotel. And then he like giggles to himself and goes back to sleep. And the next morning, 
he can't read his handwriting and he just mm. goes around the whole episode showing this to everybody and saying, please, God, tell me what this says. <laughs> it was such a great joke. He remembers that it was so great, but he can't read his own handwriting. So it's kind of that feeling of like, if I lose this, I'll be so sad. But your question was more about like the kind of insight, the piecing together that, yeah, I think that comes later. Like first I want to get down the jokes. I want to get down the funny bits, the lines I thought of, the mm. structure of the anecdote and the essay shape and then the kind of making those connections comes a little bit later yeah but did you get in that morning okay so you were trained as a poet i was trained mm -hmm. as a psychologist <laughs> <laughs> same thing <laughs> so did you get to the point of the wine and did you get to you know which which is also you're still on the same side of the injury in the mm -hmm. wine yeah. um but then at the end you actually get to a different place with it so that's where i'm curious about like when did you get there in that writing episode i think so yeah i think it was clear to me as soon as i got to the wine memory i was like mm -hmm. yeah this is about that feeling and i know that feeling but what you just said as a trained psychologist <laughs> was very interesting because I hadn't really thought before that I gave two anecdotes where the thing is being done to me. And then I talk about how I sympathize with and understand that feeling because of stuff that happened to me in my childhood. But I don't actually give any examples of me doing it to other people, which I've noticed that. <laughs> yeah. Interesting. I hadn't, yeah, I hadn't really thought about it. Um, I mean, probably. I can't think of them as readily. And I mean, I know there are many, maybe as, as recently as an hour ago, I don't, <laughs> I'm sure, but I, but they didn't hurt me because they're, I did it to, you know, there are instances in which I'm the guilty party or whatever. And so I don't remember them as clearly. We're, you know, I feel like we remember the ones where we're hurt more vividly. Right. You know, it, it's interesting because listening to this story, you found a way to get back at these people, you know, by exactly. By... <laughs> exactly. So this is maybe an actual example of ah. of doing that. I don't know, just on a meta level. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Although, oh, that's so it's really funny you should say that though, because one thing I was actually worried about and still am really worried about is the person that the story is about hearing this i mean mm. first i was nervous about her reading it which neither one of them is particularly likely i don't really think she's a follower or I'm, she doesn't subscribe to my Substack or anything but you know it's still theoretically possible and would she it's been it's been well over a year now would she even remember or recognize herself in it and if she did so i was like well this you know it's a small town this is really is somebody i see still through volunteer work and whatnot would she be mortally insulted that I wrote this essay? And then I was like, well, she's the one who did it. I'm just like, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like I should, like if she recognizes herself, well, then she should maybe have a little like session of thinking about her behavior because she, she was the one who was, who was weird about it, right? And said all these really strange things. I mean, I get it. I get that she feels, again, she was aggrieved because of the cigarette smoke, but we felt we were aggrieved because of the truly bizarre things that she said to us. So yeah, it's getting even more complicated now that I'm thinking about it some more, because this is one in which obviously both people, I mean, maybe they're all like that. Maybe all these incidents are both people feel aggrieved, right? Elle's mom felt aggrieved because I had like so stupidly chosen red wine. She wasn't thinking about it as an act of passive aggression on her part. So I don't know. It's very complicated. 
It absolutely is. I mean, we we seldom actually see ourselves as the villain in our in these stories, right? Yeah, um, yeah. It's much easier to see ourselves as you know the person who has been betrayed or you know something terrible's um, been done to. Totally. Yeah, and in fact, if that woman were to hear this story and recognize herself, I'm sure she would be completely shocked to think that there was an interpretation in which she was the one who'd done something wrong. I'm sure that would never have occurred to her in a million years, because in her mind, you know, the smoke was the thing that drove her away. Yeah, so there is a potential there, I guess, if she were to hear it, for it to be kind of like... It's it's the same with the Eleanor Hunt story. <laughs> like, I feel like I I don't really want Eleanor Hunt to hear this. Like I don't need when you said before is about getting back at the person. I I think that's true and funny in a way, but I also think I kind of don't really want to. Like I actually oh, don't just want in to. your own mind. Oh you yeah, know? yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah, but I, I don't want the actual person to to. No, 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 no. no. Yeah, well, because yeah. that's actually not as good. You know, the thing I was thinking when you were talking about the um, I have nothing but love for you. I, <laughs> what, I, what I thought is, yes, hate the smoke, love the smoker, you know, is, <laughs> is yes. kind of where that comes from. Mm-hmm. But I was thinking about, you know, the, the real thing that is curative in these situations is grace, is, mm. is giving people grace. And I, mm-hmm. and I was thinking, like, how do we go about navigating living in this world with other people when and actually this whole thing all it made me think about was covid and mm-hmm. how we're yes. dealing with other people and whether or not people are wearing masks and whether or not people have been vaccinated and all this stuff which sort of like smoking has to do with someone else's health but also yes. your health and yes. so yeah this could all just be a big metaphor for covid um <laughs> I'm writing a book right now, and a lot of it has to do with the chapter I'm writing right now is about perspective taking and Mm. trying to understand things from another person's perspective and recognizing that we have these cognitive biases. So the thing that's most helpful with that is recognizing that we have biases where we're more likely to see ourselves as the heroes, you know, and as being benevolent and see other people as being malevolent and, and aggressive and selfish. And we all do that. And so what if we actually work on how can I understand this other person from a more charitable perspective? Mm -hmm. And anyway, so I've been thinking about this a lot. Yeah. No, I think that makes perfect sense. And I think, I mean, on some level, that is kind of what I was trying to do at the end by saying I understand where that impulse, but it is, it's really complicated and tricky because of course you could read that as my saying, I can rise above my, the particularities of my situation and my biases in order to extend this understanding to this other person, which is almost kind of aggressive in a way, right? To say like, oh, I I get it. I know what's going on. So yeah, it's weird. It's like, I did mean it when I said I understood it. And I, I don't think it's a hundred percent just aggressive on my part. Like I do actually get not just being annoyed by the cigarette smoke. I think that's pretty straightforward and obvious. Like she had a right to be annoyed by it. What she didn't have a right to do was to like repeatedly. I mean, my friend was so, she was literally going to stub out the cigarette and she was like really meant it. You know, she was like the setup. That's the part that interested me. Like why is she, why is she setting up the situation? That's the trap, right? Insisting that 
she doesn't care, but then coming back at us two hours later when it's far too late for us to fix the situation. It's like she wanted to be in a situation in which that couldn't be fixed, that we couldn't, that we couldn't extend grace to her in a way, right? It reminds me of like, you know, when you're a kid and like your friend says like, just tell me, I promise I won't be angry. Just tell me, I promise I'll be over and over again. And then finally you tell them they're mad at you and you're like, like you only fall for that once, right? <laughs> <It's just> like, <laughs> that's what it felt like. It's like, I promise it's okay if you smoke. And then two hours later, by the way, you ruined our evening, which is also patently untrue. Like they sat there for two hours. Like it was, you know, it helped to, I think, to have that waiter because mm-hmm. that's like the infantile. The other little piece of this is like just wishing a parent would see your suffering and validate it for you. Mm. And so having him come over and say, you know what? I saw all of this and they were in the wrong and I want to apologize to you. Like that felt like, oh, the subjective third party is like saying, you know, you were right and they were wrong. But it's also, I think that's what you want in the infantile level, which is mm-hmm. not the level you're talking about. Because that the well, level of grace is doesn't do that, right? It's not it's not looking for its own validation. It's, it's right. trying to extend understanding to someone else. Yeah, you're absolutely right that what we want is for someone to say, oh, yes, like someone did something to you and they were wrong and you were right. And, and yeah, you, of course you want to be validated. I think that there's something about that taps into like our victim mentality, you know, Mm -hmm. like, cause, because if you're the victim, then one, you didn't do anything wrong. And like, we hate thinking that we've done something wrong. So, and in these situations, you know, basically in both the situations, someone's telling you, oh, you did something wrong. And so you're trying to psychically defend yourself in this piece. Yeah. Um, And so it also takes away responsibility. You know, if you were the victim, then it's like, not only did you not do anything wrong, but you don't have any responsibility, like being charitable, like giving grace is not up to you in that Mm -hmm. situation. Yes, absolutely. And I think if we wanted to be really honest. Oh gosh, do we? I don't know. Like, I think we should really think about that for a minute. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) I'm like, why did I use the royal we right there? (laughs) (laughs) if i wanted to maybe i'm talking about me and my friend like if we wanted to be really honest about the situation we would acknowledge that of course she wanted to have her cigarette right we'd set it all you know we'd like gone to all this trouble to get the lighter and the ashtray and to pick a table that was far away and all this stuff and you know she's about to in like literally she's lit the cigarette about to inhale it like that's a difficult position in which to suddenly decide no 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 i'm going to be self sacrificing because these women are getting up to leave. So if she had really actually stubbed it out immediately, instead of saying, I will stub it out, I will stub it out. If she'd Mm -hmm. actually just done it decisively and said, I'm not smoking, then maybe that's what she should have done. Maybe. I don't know. But on the other hand, I I also get it from her perspective too, because she's like, we, we also always kind of want to be like, what can I get away with and not have anybody be mad at me? Like how much can I, <laughs> you know, like how much can I get away with here and still be okay and still not be the bad guy, right? So I don't know. It's mm. all very complicated. I could probably write, a, you know, 500 more pages about this and all its nuances, I'm sure. Well, and I do think there's something interesting in that story about, like, we all know that smoking is bad for us, right? <laughs> yes, we do. Like, yes, we've we gotten do. that message somehow. Yeah. Although, I mean, I also remember when there were smoking sections on airplanes, which just seems so completely ludicrous now. Like, right? how is it that that happened? I actually, okay, sidebar. 
I have this idea that we should have just turned those into talking and no talking sections. Oh, yeah. Uh, because some people really love to talk to the people they're sitting next to on the plane, yeah. and some people absolutely abhor that. And yes. so I thought that's actually the way to organize people on an airplane. It's not by right. smoking and not smoking. Anyway, yes. so we missed an opportunity there. Um, <laughs> but but I love that part in the beginning of the story where you're talking about smoking in solidarity. And mm-hmm. it's like, yes, you know that it's bad, you know it's unhealthy, but you're doing something, and in a way you are justifying that then you're doing something for your friend and so it's a justifying this behavior that I mean if you step back and look objectively it's like oh this is a terrible behavior right yeah yeah (laughs) and then someone called you out on it and so that's the worst thing because they called you out on this thing that it's like yeah on some level uh you know of course you shouldn't be smoking and of course you should not encourage your friend to smoke right yeah no totally It's funny that this was about smoking because it adds this other layer. It's not just that we know smoking is bad for us. We shouldn't be doing it. We shouldn't be encouraging other people to do it. But like you said, it's also a behavior that potentially harms other people, not just yourself. So it's really tricky. And I I think the COVID metaphor, when you said before, I think this whole thing is a metaphor for COVID, I was like, well, isn't COVID a metaphor? (laughs) At this point, doesn't it just feel like everything around the pandemic is just like it's so symbolic and redolent of meaning and whatnot? So, but yeah, both metaphors for trying to live in a society or, you know, bring up those issues about communitarian ways of living, being kind to each other, cutting each other slack. It's really hard. Like, I like to think of myself as a nice person, as we all do, probably, I hope. But, like, damn, I am so not nice so much of the time. I'm so angry a lot of the time and so not tolerant. And so it's like a constant freaking daily struggle. Do other people struggle this hard just to be nice? I I don't know. Oh my gosh, yes. It, it, <laughs> it's exactly what I'm writing about is, yeah, in, okay. you know, in this context of political polarization, especially. Mm-hmm. But, you know, so when we see someone as being like on the other side or against us or whatever it is, or even just disagreeing with us on any level, mm-hmm. then we have all of these ways of thinking about them. Yeah. And this is just human nature. So But I also see every one of these moments as an opportunity to like, oh, okay, there are some skills that we can develop that will help us get through life better and and living among other human beings um, in terms of perspective taking and grace, you know, like these are the kinds of things. So people hate talking to me knowing this kind of work that I do because Mm -hmm. everybody is struggling with it. Everyone is, you know, having trouble giving grace. And so they're like, oh, gosh, Tanya's going to, like, judge me for, you know, thinking (laughs) that, you know, these people are idiots or whatever. But I can tell you for sure, everyone's struggling with this. Yeah. It's interesting because I I don't think it's something we talk about explicitly just in a on a kind of day-to-day I mean, I mean, aside from your actual work, books and publishing, and that which is fabulous because it actually is opening conversations about this. But I don't think that just like on a, even among friends, like I have friends, but you know, we talk about like everything. We talk about the deepest feelings, and but I, I can't really recall having conversations with people in which we talk about how we judge ourselves, you know, that we find it difficult to be as nice as we want to think we are, or we find it difficult to extend sympathy, courtesy, understanding to other people, even though we get that those are things that we should be doing and we want to do and we want them from other people. Um, and we get that 
our whole life, everybody's lives would be better if we were all doing that, but we have a really hard time with it. I think there's like, I don't know, maybe there's a lot of shame around it. Maybe, I mean, I know I walk around thinking, you know, when I see another person, a friend or an acquaintance or whatever, who seems to be very generous and not constantly judge other people or get mad at them or feel aggrieved or whatever, I just assume it comes naturally. And I'm like, you know, it must be me <laughs> who's who's having the trouble. And so I don't want to admit that because it feels shameful. It feels like there's something wrong with me. You know, I'm, and I, when I say me, I mean other people feeling this way too, not just myself. But so maybe, maybe it is like there's a stigma around it. There's a stigma around saying, I find it hard to be nice sometimes or a lot of the time or whatever. Because Oh, sure. Absolutely. And also, people sometimes feel like I'm judging them when I'm not actually mm. judging them, you know, just yeah. because I'm doing a certain thing like, oh, I'm I'm doing a perspective taking thing where I'm like, oh, I wonder if people are feeling this way. And that's why they're right. doing this. And then people feel like I'm being judgy of them for not doing that. Mm-hmm. And so I think that we all do have this concern about being judged and being told Mm -hmm. that we're doing something wrong, especially kind of morally wrong. And so it's really natural to get defensive about Mm -hmm. that. And I think that that that's something that really comes out in here. You're like, we weren't wrong. Like, I wasn't wrong about ordering the wine. Like, I tried, like, here's a list of things that I did to try (laughs) to make sure that I was being considerate. And that's, I think, a very natural reaction to have. And That's where I think, oh, isn't it interesting for us to try on a different thing, to Mm -hmm. try on a like, like, what would it be like to lay that defensiveness down and Mm -hmm. try to really be like, wow, I really do wonder where they were coming from and try to get into their shoes rather than I wonder where I would frame their coming from, from my perspective. Yeah, I guess... Though, too, my first reaction to that is to say, I'm just going to go ahead and be not nice since I've already admitted that I'm not like a naturally <laughs> nice person. Um, <laughs> what do I have to lose at this point? This question probably comes up in your work a lot. I, I mean, I certainly feel like around the political stuff, right? It's like there's lines that I will not cross. I'm not going to try to understand or sympathize with a Nazi or whatever. I'm just like, I, have, I don't have time for this. I don't want anything to do with you. I don't want you in my culture or my society or whatever but even like on a milder level sometimes I'm like you know I tried like with Elle's mom I'm like I tried she's got some weird thing going on with her I'll probably never understand it she probably doesn't understand it herself we're just not gonna I'm done you know like so Mm -hmm. I do kind of feel that way sometimes like I just I don't have the bandwidth to try to figure everybody out or to you know, or sometimes I'm like, oh, no, I don't want to give you any grace. (laughs) You don't deserve my grace. Sorry, (laughs) walking away or whatever. So, I mean, that feels like a valid possible reaction in some instances. I think that those are two very different things to say, I don't want to give you any grace and you don't deserve any grace. Mm -hmm. Um, Because admitting (laughs) that it's just like, I, I don't have that in me, you know, is very different from saying it's not something that, like, I'm not going to give it to you because of something about you. Right, right. Yeah. And I don't have it in me a lot of the time. You know, sometimes I just don't, if there's like an instrumental interaction with somebody that was unpleasant, I I can't repair everything or I can't, not going to see that person again, or it's just one of those things. Also, I have to say, okay, this is like, speaking of COVID. So I got COVID. I swear this is connected. I got COVID. What has it been like six weeks ago now? And ostensibly I've recovered I don't have any like long COVID or lingering effects that are physical, but 
I am extremely irritable all the time, mm. like way more than normal. And this thing is happening to me now where I'm like waking up in the middle of the night almost every hour on the hour with my heart pounding. So I, I mean, that started exactly with COVID. So I wake up with my heart pounding and then I just lie there feeling the physical feeling of anxiety in my body and then like trying to figure out a content for it. And oh, there's always a content, right? <laughs> you could always come up with something. But it's like, I'm fine as long as everything goes exactly right. But as soon as there's any kind of frustration or stressful thing that normally I would handle probably pretty well or would just take it in stride or whatever, it's like everything's on my last nerve, right? And I, it's oh, yeah. weird because it's obviously some kind of neurological or physiological effect because it's 100% started to the day. And it's a particular feeling in my body too. Like I keep thinking about um, in the 19th century novel – People are always talking about their nerves, you know, <laughs> like, um, and, and often they would talk about their nerves as, as having problems with their nerves after an illness, right? Mm -hmm. So I feel like this is something that people in the past recognized, at least there's lots of literary examples of it, that like a virus or an illness can leave you feeling strung out, you know, depleted in ways that, you know, are actually have social and psychological effects, but are really kind of physiological. Anyway, this is a very long yeah. way of saying I've been thinking about this more lately because I'm having more trouble being nice than normal. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, sure. yeah. Well, you're, yeah. you know, you're really depleted I, and, yeah. and it's really hard for us to have that within us to, to be nice all the time or to perspective take or to do something. There's also a thing about COVID apparently where long COVID I don't know if it's long COVID or just COVID generally, but whatever right. can affect the vagus nerve. And so there yes. is stuff going on physiologically for yes. us. And yes, it's much harder for us to, I don't know what we want to think about it as be generous, be our best selves, whatever, mm -hmm. when we're feeling physiologically depleted and activated at the same time. Yeah. I think it's so fascinating because I I, re I recognize this in myself, right? I'm completely fascinated with stuff like the vagus nerve and anxiety. You know, I have an anxiety disorder. I have panic attacks in the past. And maybe that's why I've been particularly susceptible to COVID messing me up in some way. But it's like... I'm simultaneously completely fascinated by the physiological aspects of it, right? Like mm -hmm. fMRI machines and, you know, parts of your brain that are activated and the vagus nerve and, and breathing techniques and all of it. But at the same time, it's also deeply horrifying on some like existential level to think that there's such a strong physiological or physical component to your own so things like sympathy, generosity, kindness, calmness. It's real. It's upsetting in a way. Like you know, I should have control over that. It's because it's my mm. character and it's my personality and it's who I am. It's my soul or something. It's like it shouldn't be my nerve. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> it's like something really kind of upsetting about that to think like a virus shouldn't make me less nice. What the what the hell's up with that? Yeah, yeah. Well, I think it's so helpful to get what all these different components are. You know, there's physiological stuff. There's the psychological stuff about our cognitive biases. There's all these different things that sort of put us in a situation where it's challenging to get ourselves there. I mean, honestly, I was 
I am a much nicer person 20 some years into practicing Buddhism than I was Mm -hmm. before. I mean, you knew me before. (laughs) And I'm way nicer now. But it took a while. You know, people are always like, oh, I don't know that person. They're Buddhist, but they're, you know, not nice all the time. I'm like, the reason that I started practicing Buddhism was because I was not nice all the time. It's like, you don't have to be Buddhist if it comes so easily to you, but you got to practice for 20 some years if it doesn't. Yeah, exactly. So I think the fact that it's not, you know, our nature in some ways is the motivating factor for me. Mm, that's a good way of thinking about it. I remember, um, as you know, and I've written about too, I've practiced Zen off and on, but never, like, I've never been disciplined enough about it. You always think about that old saying, like, you should meditate an hour a day, and if you don't have enough time for that, you should meditate two hours a day, right? Um, there, I remember I was uh, at the Zendo in Vancouver, and after, you know, after meditation and walking meditation, then we'd have tea and sometimes there'd be a Dharma talk, but sometimes we would just have a little conversation with a guiding question or something. And I was sitting and talking to this young man. He was got to be in his early twenties. And I remember thinking kind of envious, like, wow. I mean, I did start doing Zen in my early twenties. I started in grad school, but I didn't keep it up. Um, and I returned to it later, middle age, but, um, just looking at him and thinking like, wow, he's like, got a, he's getting a great start. You know, he's like doing this so early. And I said to him, what, you know, what is your motivation? What, what made you want to do this at such a young age and what attracted you to it? And he said, I will never forget this. This is one of these things I'll probably, you know, remember the rest of my life. He said, I just don't want to waste my life. And I was like, well, that's an amazing thing to say. I get it. But usually when people say, I don't want to waste my life, they're talking about things like making money or having kids or having a career or doing all that kind of ambitious stuff. But no, he meant, I don't want to get to the end of my life and realize that I hadn't become a better person or a calmer person or, or had some kind of insight or, you know, whatever it is that he was looking to get out of Buddhist practice that he was already thinking that way. And I felt like saying like, I think you're okay already just for having (laughs) the fact that you're already thinking that way means you're probably not going to waste your life. You think you should, you can probably relax about that. But yeah, it was kind of an amazing moment. Oh, that's remarkable. Yeah. Mm, I love that. Well, he was a cool kid. We've been so many places in this conversation and I'm, (laughs) (laughs) I'm, I'm aware of the time. And so I'm just wondering, like, is there anything else about this essay or about any of the topics that we've covered that you want to, you want to say? I guess I want to say about the essay that when I was thinking about things I might want to talk about today, I remember thinking, I definitely want to talk a little bit or say something anyway about the regional differences in in ways of being passive aggressive. And then I realized when I read the essay just now again aloud that I actually do talk about that. I'd kind of forgotten that I mentioned it in the essay itself. But um, I do feel like, because now I've, you know, I was raised in the Northeast, which has its own (laughs) special aggressive charm, (laughs) Um, especially being from Philadelphia. I'm the, the proud winner of a Saturday Night Live. Oh no, sorry. It was a daily show skit about who has the worst sports fans Philly or New York and Philly won. So I'm, you know, feel very proud of that. And then, you know, like my family's been in the South for a really long time, which has its own thing. I've been in Canada for 13 years. So I feel like I've done a big tour of like the country's passive aggressive hotspots or, you know, maybe the Midwest, we want to throw that in there too. But I feel like I almost wanted wanted to make a joke in the essay about how like every region has its version of this. Like in the South, it might be I'm only thinking of you and I have nothing but love or whatever. And, you know, Canadians just like obsessively apologize for everything, even though they don't mean it. But I almost feel like there's, you know, 
often don't need it. I don't mean never, but um, they don't always mean it. But I was going to make a joke about how like every culture, every society needs to have some kind of coded way of releasing aggression or letting somebody know that you're mad at them, even though you're not coming out and saying it. It feels almost like everybody, like in the South, everybody knows what bless your heart means. It doesn't mean what you think if you're not from the South, right? But at the same time, when somebody says bless your heart, even though you know they're kind of burning you a little bit, <laughs> a little bit, it's like because it's couched in this way, it's not actually that upsetting. So it's almost like a pressure valve release or something, right? That like as a, uh, cultures need a way to express aggression in ways that are making it clear that you're mad, but you're not actually coming right out and saying it. The other person gets it. And then it's kind of like, okay, we're good. You said, bless your heart. I know what you mean. We're cool. We can move on. And I wonder if that's like, I don't know. It was, I was going to make it a joke, but now I'm wondering if it's not a joke, if maybe that really is a kind of thing that, that most cultures come up with in some way, a way of a kind of coded expression. Well, given the challenges that we're all going to experience living in this world with other people, that we need a way to repair ruptures. Yeah. And so, yeah, I, I really appreciate your thinking about it that way. Like maybe there's sort of regional or cultural uh, strategies for mm -hmm. doing that. Yeah. And, and you know what they are if you're from that culture. Like, mm -hmm. that's what's so interesting about moving around so much is like, you're like, whoa, what, <laughs> what does this person mean when they say sorry like that? Even though I just bumped into them, like, why are you apologizing to me? And then eventually you realize that when you bump into a Canadian on public transit and they say sorry, sorry, that's their way of letting you know they're pissed off at you, right? Or whatever. <laughs> it's just like, you just have to learn the code eventually. And I'll I'll never fully understand the Canadian one or the Southern one because I'm not from there. But I, I sure know what a Philadelphian means when they get mad at you. <laughs> That's incredible. I think it's a little bit more direct. <laughs> exactly. Well, exactly. I, I appreciate that. I grew up with people just kind of yelling at you. And so I, I feel comfortable with that. Whereas I know lots of people really don't. You know, they'd rather have the whole sorry exchange than have somebody actually get in your face. Um, whereas I, I prefer that. So anyway, yeah. Uh, we can yeah. talk more about this at some point, but yeah. there's a whole thing about high context communication and low context oh. communication and different cultures. And But it's related to this thing about kind of how direct are we in communicating about things mm. or how direct do we need to be depending on how much we are relying on the context for the situation. Interesting. Yeah, I'd be really interested to hear about that because obviously I'm thinking about these things, but I don't have the vocabulary for actual categories are that'd be really cool to learn more okay about I'm, so, I'm just yeah. I'll, I'll just do like a 30 seconds on it which okay, is right. that with high context communication you oh no I'm always getting them mixed up okay in one <laughs> of them one of them people rely a lot on the context for understanding the communication okay I'm half Chinese and half Jewish so like my Chinese side it's like in that family there's so many things that go unsaid but that people just understand because mm. it's like embedded in the culture. But I feel like on my Jewish side, it's much more direct. It's much mm -hmm. more like people articulate everything. Like people would even be like, here, I'm about to tell you what I'm about to tell you, then I'm going right. to tell it to you. Like that, that way that people say you should give a talk, but people actually communicate that way interpersonally also. So right. 
it's really whether or not you're relying on the context. And if you are, if you think that you should articulate everything fully, and then people who don't do that feel like, why are you saying all of that? It seems really aggressive. And if you're someone who's used to doing that and other people aren't explaining everything, you're like, what on earth is going on here? So anyway, that's, that's the basic idea of it. I think of this as gendered communication sometimes too. Like, mm. um, I mean, I hate like obviously <laughs> the whole men are from Mars, women from Venus thing, whatever. But I mean, I swear, I think we talked about on this podcast before about the podcast called "If, Bo- if Books Could Kill." Oh, it's so good! It's by uh, now I can never remember Michael Hobbs. I can never remember people's names in the moment, but Michael Hobbs, who was also on um, "You're Wrong About" and on Maintenance Phase, he's fantastic. He started a relatively new podcast now with another guy whose name I can't remember, who's a lawyer and we used to do Supreme Court podcast. But anyway, they basically are just going back and rereading these really influential books, like mostly self-help books, but not entirely like history, sociology, whatever, that had a really big cultural impact and then just like ripping them apart, like doing all kinds of research. They did, if men are from Mars, women are from Venus, they did that one on the show, I believe, or at least they referred to it at length at some point. And of course it's incredibly silly, but it's also like, well, <laughs> I I find I find Deborah Tannen's you just don't understand yes. like a better framing yes. for yes. that. Yes, mm-hmm. absolutely. Um anyway, the point is like I partly because I think it's a gender difference in communication and partly personality or whatever it is, partly because I've been like so ruthlessly therapized maybe and my partner hasn't, but I I do a lot of introducing any you know like I, like exactly like you said, all right, there's this thing I want to talk about, but I want to make, first of all, I have to explain to you that I don't mean it this way and I want you to feel this way and I don't, you know, like so much introducing mm-hmm. to make sure the feelings are all right and like everybody, and and Scott's just like, oh my God, just <laughs> just tell me whatever the thing is. I'm like, no, but I have to do the lead in. I can't like not do the, it feels way too abrupt to me to just say like, I'm upset about this. You know, I have to be like, now I know that you have a perspective and I have, like, I just do all this kind of like super duper frame and that's my own anxiety, right? It's like, I'm just trying to control his reaction or whatever, or make sure that it all goes okay or something. But, but yeah, that's, that makes perfect sense to me, that distinction between high context and low context. And it changes too. That's your low context. I got it. I figured out which, which is which. So low context needs to like say everything explicitly because they're not relying on context at all. Got it. Okay, right. Yeah. Which is interesting to think about in the context of an intimate relationship. Like you'd think we would have lots of context <laughs> after 25 <laughs> years of being together. And we do. We do. It's just that I can never seem to let go right. of my Scott will rely on it more. Yeah. Yes, mm-hmm. exactly. Yeah. Whereas I'm like, I got to make sure it goes exactly the way I want it to go. Yeah. <laughs> kind of thing. So, all right. Well, that's well, helpful. Thank you. Good. Well, thank you for this. This has been marvelous. And again, welcome everyone to season two. Uh, Yeah. Keep tuning in for more. Yeah. Awesome. Thanks, Tanya. Bye, everybody. Listeners, if you liked what you heard, please rate, review, subscribe, and share so more folks can find us. You can follow us on social media at Dr. Waffle Pod, that's Dr. Waffle Pod, or email us at drwafflepod at gmail.com. Check out the show notes for websites and other info. Thanks for listening.